Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. For today's teaching is Mark 8, 34 through 9, 1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of God for us. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. Uh, also want to say that it's the Memorial Marathon today, so if you see uh, some familiar faces not here, chances are they're actually running in the race, and because of that, our downtown congregation doesn't have 9 or 11 o'clock services. They're only going to do one service at 5 o'clock, so we, we have some friends from our downtown congregation here with us today, too. So, awesome day, uh, and, and love that we get to kind of welcome you guys from downtown if you're here. Um, we, we just stood for the reading of God's Word, and the reason why we do that is because as followers of Jesus, what we're saying, what we're embodying physically is that we wanna be people who stand underneath the authority of scripture. And you might be here today and you're not sure what you believe. Maybe you're sure that you don't believe or you have questions, whatever it is. And and for you, I just wanna say, man, while those of us who are followers of Jesus are standing under the authority of God's word, we just wanna invite you in to wrestle. We wanna invite you in to process, is there something here that not only makes sense, but it's true. And, and we don't claim to have all the answers, but we'd love to help you as you wrestle because we actually think that there is something here that's true, that really life can be found in Jesus. So uh, welcome to you if you're here and you're just checking things out. I wanna take a second, I wanna pray for us, but if you are not yet there, we are gonna be in Mark chapter eight, 34 through uh, the beginning of chapter nine. This is that turning point we talked about last week in the book of Mark, a significant turning point where we go from the first part of saying, the king is here and his name is Jesus, to the second part of this book of Mark that says, the king is here, but he's not what you think. He's not what you think. And we're gonna learn about who this king is and what that means for us over the next several weeks. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we pray today that you would not just allow us to talk about scripture, but we pray today that you would, by your spirit, shape us through scripture. We pray that we'd be shaped and formed. I confess, all week long, 
I have been shaped and formed in ways that I don't even fully understand. My loves, my desires have been in many ways disordered and dysfunctional. And I just confess today my need for you and our need for you. We need to be shaped again around what is real and what is true. The, the truest story that we're stepping into today, would you give us the grace to be formed by and meet us. Even my friends that are wrestling or not sure where they're at with all this, meet them and, and address their concerns and their objections and the doubts that they have. Thank you that you don't push doubters away, but you welcome them in. So we come to you, we look to you, pray these things in your name, amen. In the summer of 64 AD, the apostle Peter was led out of his prison cell in Rome He was stretched out over a Roman cross, and he was crucified while hanging upside down, all because he made the statement, Jesus is the Christ. That same day, which is bizarre to think about, church history tells us that the apostle Paul was also let out of his prison cell, and he was beheaded for a similar claim that Jesus is Lord. Same day, all kind of unleashed by the Roman emperor Nero. And this was the first wave of many, 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 many major waves of persecution and suffering to hit the early church. Uh, This isn't just the fate of Paul or Peter. Actually, in many ways, this is the fate of almost every one of the 12 apostles. For example, the apostle Andrew was crucified. James was put to death with a sword by King Herod. Bartholomew was flayed of his skin and then beheaded. Thomas, who unfortunately is known in history as Doubting Thomas, actually wasn't always Doubting Thomas. He actually died with the claim Jesus is Lord and as a result was speared to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, in the middle of preaching a sermon about Jesus, was pushed off of a rooftop and then we we don't know either clubbed to death or stoned to death. Most people think stoned. In fact, John, the apostle, was the only one of the 12 who died of natural causes that we know of. He actually did face suffering and persecution too, though. It's not like he got off. He was exiled on an island called Patmos for a long, long time. There on that island, they, true story, tried to boil him to death on three separate occasions. The old guy just wouldn't die. He would not die. And so eventually they're like, ah, you can go. So they released him and John died an old man with scars all over his body for the same statement, Jesus is the Christ. And what's really crazy and sad is that this isn't just the fate of the apostles or the church leaders. If you know anything about church history, then you know that a similar fate was in store for many, many people who claimed to follow Jesus. I wanna show you this photo here. This was from the 1800s, a painting, but it really kind of shows and depicts the many varied ways that early Christians in the early church died. They were arrested, held in prison for months on end while their homes and their possessions were pillaged. If they were released, they would come home and literally be bankrupt, have nothing to go back to. Some of them were sewn alive into the hides of wild animals and they were thrown to the beasts to be devoured alive. Others were placed inside the arena to die by the swords of gladiators or they'd release wild animals on them. Many were dipped in tar and hung on crosses to light up Emperor Nero's evening dinner parties. And on and on and on, you can go reading throughout history the fate of these early Christians. One story in particular that 
absolutely gripped me when I first read it. I didn't grow up hearing about this, but I read a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, which is an incredible book I highly recommend. And in that book, he talks about this young woman named Perpetua. Perpetua was a wealthy, well-educated 22-year-old from Carthage. She was married, and she had just had an infant son. And not long before this, she'd become a Christian. Right after becoming a Christian, she was in the middle of a gathering with other Christians in a home when a group of Roman soldiers, or a group of soldiers from Carthage basically uh, broke in and arrested the people that were gathering there to worship Jesus as Lord. They held them in prison for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. They mistreated them. They didn't give them proper food or water. Eventually, she was allowed to have her baby in prison with her so that she could continue to nurse her baby. And then finally, the conditions were so bad that her dad pleaded with her, let us take the child. So the child went with her dad and with her, her mom and with her brothers to have a wet nurse basically allow them to keep the baby alive. And so on and on, this happened, just horrible, horrible time in prison. And eventually, the day of her trial came. And when her trial showed up, her dad showed up as well, holding her infant son. And I just want you to put yourself in her shoes and listen to what her dad told her that day. He pleads with her, my daughter, have pity on my gray hair. Have pity on your father. If I'm worthy to be called father by you, if with these hands I've raised you to this flower of youth, do not shame me among men. Think about your brothers. Think about your mother and your mother's sister. Think about your son who will not be able to live without you. Give up your pride. Do not destroy us all, for if you are punished, none of us will be able to speak freely again. Offer the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby Spare the gray hair of your father. Spare your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the health of the emperors. See, all that she had to do to get off free, to leave prison, to not be executed, was just to, instead of saying Jesus is Christ, all she had to do was offer a sacrifice to Caesar as Lord. That's all she had to do. And her dad is pleading with her. And yet during her trial, she stood up and she kept repeating the phrase, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. A few months later, she and the other people in jail with her were led to the arena. The women were stripped naked to shame them. Their hands were bound. And on the women, they released a wild bull who gouged uh, Perpetua, and she was going to bleed out to death. And then eventually the gladiators showed up and ran her through with the sword. She died paying the ultimate price, saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This was the fate of Paul and of Peter and Perpetua and many, many other brothers and sisters throughout church history. Here's why I tell you all of these stories. Because it's really easy for us to think, sitting in the comfort of the West, that being a follower of Jesus doesn't actually have any cost to it. That it's actually possible to walk with Jesus and not have a price to pay and What's crazy about that is we even forget right now, right now in 2021, all across the globe and certain parts of the Middle East and parts of India and parts of Southeast Asia, there are brothers and sisters alive today that are also facing a very similar fate just for the phrase, Jesus is Lord, because they want to be disciples of this Jesus. They're paying the ultimate price too. So it's easy for us to forget that there is no cost for people like us And what I want you to see today, oh, but there is. There is a cost for you and I. 
Now, this might be the most unpopular sermon I'll ever preach all year long because it's probably one of the most unpopular things that Jesus is gonna call us to in the gospel of Mark. So his words, not mine. Let's jump in and let's wrestle with what he has to tell us today. Chapter eight, verse 34. And calling to the crowd, calling the crowd rather to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, now just pause there. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? If anyone would come after me, what does it mean to come after Jesus? Well, in the ESV translation, which is what we've read from today together, that's how it's worded, if anyone would come after me. But in in the Greek, it actually is worded in a far more profound, interesting way way that I want you to catch and grab a hold of. Here's what it says in the Greek, literal translation. Whoever wishes to follow behind, opizo, follow behind me. This is interesting because if you were with us last week, then you should recognize that idea, that concept of getting behind or following behind Jesus. Why? Because in the verse before this, in verse 33, this was the same exact word that was used by Jesus when he confronted and rebuked Peter. He says, hey, Peter, get behind me. Opizo me. Get behind me. And we often think of this as a rebuke on Peter, which it was, and and think that it's just Peter that's being called to get behind Jesus, that Peter's got his mind set on worldly things and not on the things of God. And so Peter's the one who needs to get behind Jesus. But here's what's fascinating. Every disciple, in fact, the heart of what it means to be a disciple is to actually transition from placing your mind on the things of this world and starting to place them on the things of God and to get behind Jesus. In fact, that's the heart of what it is to be a Christian. There is no such thing as being a Christian that isn't also being someone who's behind Jesus. And what that means is that all of a sudden, your own worldview and your own thought process and your own desires and your own uh, hopes and dreams and your vision of the good life suddenly, and, and for me, over time and painfully so, become less and less fixated on the things of this world and more and more fixated on the way of Jesus in this world. It's to get behind Jesus. It's to have his vision of money and sexuality and marriage and singleness and generosity and enemy love and all the things that he talks about in the gospel, all the things that he unpacks in the Sermon on the Mount, for us as people to, in a real way, get behind him and then follow after that. That's what it is to be a Christian. So this isn't just something that Peter needed to hear. Hey, get behind me, Peter. Or in his case, get behind me, Satan. In our case, we also need to hear the gentle call of Jesus. Hey, get behind me too. Calling to the crowds, get behind me. This is what it is to be a disciple. So let's keep reading verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As best as I can tell, there are two primary costs involved in following Jesus. There's probably more, but at least two from this one verse. Here's the first one that I want you to see. The first one is the cost of self-denial. Let him deny himself or herself and follow me. This is the cost of self-denial. Now, here's how I want to unpack this. Um, For Peter... This immediate context to hear Jesus say these words, deny yourself, meant something very specific for people like Peter and the rest of the apostles. And here's why. 
Because as you remember last week, Peter's vision of following Jesus did not entail anything like suffering, did not entail anything like hardship or self-denial. For Peter, he was following after this Messiah because Peter thought this Messiah is about to crush the Roman Empire. He is about to unleash hell on them, and he's going to actually enable the people of Israel to be restored to their rightful place, and I will get to witness the kingdom of God coming in power. I'm going to get to witness this Jesus conquering our Roman enemies. And then because I'm one of his close disciples, I'm going to get to sit there in power and authority with him as we dominate Rome. This is what Peter in his own disordered desires thought that being a Christian and following this Messiah meant. And the reality is Peter is slowly but surely waking up to, and just like that blind man last week having his eyes slowly opened up to, is that Jesus isn't the type of Messiah that Peter thought that he's not the type of Messiah that's gonna waltz into Rome and tell Caesar to get off of his chair. He's going to actually go the way of suffering and persecution and death on a Roman cross. And his greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, are gonna be defeated, but Rome's not one of them. So this is this crisis that Peter is having where he has all these hopes and all these dreams and all these desires, and Jesus is telling Peter, hey man, you need to deny that part of you. You need to deny that part of you, man. If you're gonna be my disciple, you can't say yes to those desires because those desires are not what I have in store for you. Or take Simon the Zealot. We forget about zealots because zealots were crazy people. They were Jewish people that thought Jews had sold out to the Roman Empire and they had to some degree. So there was a sect of these zealots that would carry daggers. They were called the Sicarii. They'd dress in robes and they would sneak into crowds and they would find Roman soldiers and slit their throats and then hide back into the crowd. Or they'd find Jewish uh, people who were sympathetic to Rome and they would slit their throats. Guess who one of Jesus' disciples is? Simon the Zealot, a guy that wants to physically, literally murder anyone who's sympathetic to Rome. And what Jesus is telling Simon the Zealot is, hey man, if you're gonna be my disciple, deny that part of you. Deny that part of you. You can't say yes to that because what I have in store for you is a different way. Jesus is looking at everyone in the room And it's different for all of us, but there's parts of our heart that are dysfunctional and disordered and bent and broken. And what Jesus is coming and looking at you and I in the eyes and saying is, deny yourself. Say no to it and come after me, get behind me in a different way. This is quite literally for our day-to-day cultural heresy, isn't it? Can you think of anything more absurd than denying yourself in 2021? We are, as a culture, bent on not denying yourself, but affirming yourself and exploring to find out who your real authentic self is and putting that self on display. This is really hard for us to swallow. Mark Sayers, in his book, Disappearing Church, says it this way, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. In other words, we're fine with God. I mean, it's great to have God. I can believe in God so long as God doesn't tell me no on what I really deeply want. I'm great with God and having a relationship with God so long as he doesn't make any demands on my life or my money or my sexuality or my politics or my hopes and my dreams for my own life. 
And yet Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, deny yourself, right? Now, we get this intuitively. We know that whenever you step into a loving relationship with someone, the more that relationship becomes uh, uh, deep and, and real and the more that relationship becomes authentic and intimate, the more inherently your freedom and autonomy start to be limited. Like, here's an example. Let's just say that you met somebody in the city, you're single, you meet someone in the city, and you guys start to fall in love. It's not just you love that person, they love you back, which is always helpful in a relationship, you know? It's like, I really love this person. Well, they don't really like you at all. But imagine, this is like a a two-way street here. They love you, you love them, and things start to get serious. And then you're like, you know what, I'm just gonna leave town. I'm just gonna leave town. I'm not gonna text that person. I'm not gonna tell them where I'm at. And you just decide, like, you, you get in your car and you drive and you leave town for four weeks. And that person calls you and, like, what's going on? And you defend your decision to leave town by saying, well, I don't have to tell you where I'm going. I belong to myself. I'm just being me. Well, you're not gonna be in that relationship for much longer, right? Why? Because if you're really gonna have a loving relationship with another person, your freedom is inherently limited. When I said yes to my wife, I said no to all other women. When she said yes to me, she said no to all other men. By saying yes in this loving relationship, I was also limiting my freedom and my autonomy. We get that in a loving relationship. Friends, it doesn't work any differently in our relationship with Jesus himself. You cannot continue in a relationship with Jesus where you and I just continue to say to him, this is who I am, let me be me. I'm okay with you being God, just don't make any demands on me. You can't have a real relationship with him. Tim Keller explains it like this. He says, in 1971, I heard a talk that changed my life. The woman named Barbara Boyd said, if somebody says to me, come on in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, it's a bit of a problem because I can't separate them. It's not like the top half of me is Barbara and the bottom half of me is Boyd. So if you won't have the Boyd, you can't get Barbara. If you're going to keep the Boyd out, I can't come in at all. She continued, to say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sins, answer my prayers, do this for me and do that for me, but don't be the absolute master of my life. Jesus, Savior, come in, but Lord, stay out. How can he come in at all? Because he's all Savior and he's all Lord. He's Lord because he's Savior, and he's Savior because he's Lord. Friends, Jesus is looking me and you in the eye today, and he's saying, hey, if anyone wants to get behind me, cost number one is you deny yourself. Here's the second cost. Look at verse 34. Calling, to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the second cost is the cost of the cross. It's the cost of the cross. Now, I want to define this for you because I think that we've been not helped by uh, the way that the cross has been turned into Uh, art or jewelry. Not not that I'm against that. I just think that when we think of the cross, we often think of a symbol of art or jewelry or or maybe even the statements that often get said. Like, have you ever heard somebody say, well, it's just my cross to bear? Or, well, we all have our crosses in life. And what we mean is something to the effect of like, 
We all have burdens. And so often people have translated Jesus's words here to mean, if you're gonna be my disciples, it's not gonna shield you from the burdens of life. Like you're gonna have burdens and, and stuff in your own life to carry too. You're gonna have stuff that you gotta process just like everybody else. But that's actually not anywhere close to what Jesus is saying here. This isn't reference a reference to a piece of art or jewelry or the burdens of everyday life. In the first century, the cross meant something. And remember, this is before Jesus himself even has gone to the cross. And they know exactly what he's talking about. Why? Because the cross was a tool of Roman execution for their enemies. It was the loudest and boldest and most shameful way that Rome could tell you, no, we think you are wrong. It was cultural rejection at its finest. In fact, it was so brutal and so shameful and so horrific that if you were a Roman citizen, you were not legally allowed to be crucified. This was only reserved for people outside of Rome. That was one of the benefits of being a Roman is that you don't have to experience crucifixion. So often Jewish people were the ones, Jewish criminals were the ones who were executed by Rome via crucifixion. So when Jesus is saying, take up your cross, this is just my attempt to try to define and put some flesh on that statement. Take up your cross means receiving and embracing the shame and humiliation thrown at you by the watching world. To take up your cross means to follow Jesus on the road to rejection and betrayal and death. It's to place your hope in the resurrection rather than in cultural acceptance. There's a real cost to following Jesus, and it's not that there's just disordered desires in your own heart and in my own heart that we have to say no to. There's a real cost to following Jesus, and it's the cultural cost of being associated with with Jesus and his church. And what this meant for the first century, as I said in my intro, was that many, many, many followers of Jesus actually quite literally had to take up their cross and be executed for being a follower of Jesus. There's a book by Larry Hurtado called Destroyer of the Gods, and it's kind of him giving a historical explanation for how and why the early church grew in the first 300 years. And it's fascinating because in that book, what he says is basically he lists out a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, uh, words, descriptors that were thrown out by people towards the church, towards early Christians. Listen to some of these things that were said about the early church. Silly, stupid, irrational, Simple, wicked, hateful, obstinate, antisocial, extravagant, perverse, and on and on and on they went. Like to be a Christian in the first century was to be hated. It's okay to, you know, have a different religion in this time in history, but you can't have a different religion that says that all the other religions are not the way to life. You can't have one that says that Jesus is actually Lord and not Caesar. And so to be a Christian in the first century was to be hated And it was to actually sign up for suffering and slander and persecution and imprisonment and often death. Now, thank God that to be a Christian today doesn't involve, at least in the West, uh, us signing up for physical persecution or death. Like most of us in this room will not be ever asked in our lifetime, I think, to pay the ultimate price of physically dying for being a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's highly unlikely that most of us in this room will ever be asked to pay that type of a price. But please don't assume from that that somehow <clears throat> uh, it's, there's no cost involved to being a follower of Jesus, 
even in our culture in the West. It's certainly not on the same level, but have you noticed that being a Christian doesn't win you any cultural points right now? No one's like, oh, great. Thank God for you because you're really the hope of the world. No, it's you're the problem with everything going on in the world. A new set of accusations is being thrown at the church like, oh, you're abusive. You're repressive. You're restrictive. You're outdated. You're unintelligent. You're bigoted. You're dangerous. You're on the wrong side of history. I mean, am I the only one that when someone finds out that you're a Christian, that at times you feel like you have to do the matrix backbend a little bit and like, well, I'm not like those people. And, you know, and we do all that. Like what we're trying to say is, well, don't write me off just yet. I can't tell you how many times, even in Oklahoma, and this has shifted in the last five years, even in Oklahoma, I dread when people ask me the question, hey, what is it that you do? I hate that question. This is the worst question ever for me right now. And, and, and I answer it. Truthfully, I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And what was a really normal conversation, it's like I just admitted to liking dogfighting or something, you know? And they're like, oh, okay. And, and all of a sudden, like this normal conversation gets super awkward and super weird. Have you sensed this? Have you felt this? We are increasingly experiencing not physical persecution per se, but cultural disrespect. It's gonna get harder and harder to associate yourself with Jesus and his church. There is a cost of the cross that you and I are gonna have to bear. So why do it? Why do it? Why follow Jesus? In fact, some of you are here and you're not currently following Jesus. You're on the fence and you're like, hey, this has not helped me want to follow Jesus, by the way. I have made up my mind. I do not want to follow Jesus. Thank you for today's talk. It's been super unhelpful, right? Or maybe you're, a follower of Jesus, let's get real for a minute. And you're like, yeah, I'm starting to wonder the same thing. Why do this anymore? This is getting hard. Well, here's why. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. <clears throat> Friends, here's why it's worth it. Because yes, there's a cost involved in following Jesus, but there's a far greater cost in not following Jesus. When you make the decision to not get behind Jesus, when you make the decision to say yes to every bit of disordered, dysfunctional, bent desires in your soul, the base broken parts of you, when you decide to be the ultimate authority in your life, to have no one else be able to tell you that you're wrong or no, to have no one else that you can actually follow that knows how to do this complicated thing called life. When you make all of those decisions in your own soul, in your own brain, it actually doesn't lead to greater life or greater thriving or greater flourishing or greater joy or greater pleasure or greater hope. It leads to dysfunction and it leads to death. It's worth it and actually paying the cost because if you're gonna try to find your life outside of Jesus, you will ironically, sadly, lose your life. But if you try to find your life in Jesus by losing your life, you'll ironically gain it and find it. 
This is um, really kind of touched on in uh, something David Foster Wallace said. David Foster Wallace is one of my favorite American writers, tragically committed suicide in 2008. He was not a follower of Jesus. In an interview in 1999, he said this, kind of describing the type of lostness that I think is playing out culturally. The sadness that I was going through was a real American type of sadness. I was white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. Friends, this is happening all over in the world. There's just a sort of lostness, and that's not me being pejorative. It's just, actually, it's not wrong or bad to be lost. We've all gotten lost before. You don't know where you're going. There's this sort of adriftness, and Jesus is standing as the hope of the world saying, hey, crowds, come get behind me. Come actually take up my way. Deny yourself and take up your cross, and let me show you what it means to truly be human in the world. You can find your life by giving it away to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis describes this upside-down reality of finding life by giving it away like this in Mere Christianity. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. I love that. Like the real you, the real me is waiting for us in Jesus somewhere not outside of Jesus. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and my own upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. There's a real cost. It's the cost of self-denial and the cost of the cross. Okay, let's land the plane like this. There is a verse that comes at the very end of all of this that's so weird. It's so bizarre And uh, I read one commentator that said he thinks the person who did the chapter and verses was drunk when he did this one, right? And some of you don't know this, but like the chapters and verses were not like inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. You know, that was like added later. So it's okay to make fun of those breakdowns at times and divisions. So here's the very end of what Jesus has been saying. And it's super important, even though at first it feels weird. It actually is really powerful and really beautiful. Mark chapter nine, verse one. Look at this with me. This should have been the last verse of chapter eight. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this has confused a lot of people. They're like, is Jesus saying that he's gonna come back and some of his disciples there are gonna physically see it? We tend to think of any time we read about the kingdom of God coming in power, meaning Jesus returning at the end of all time. That is not at all what's being described here. What's being described here is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, through my death and my resurrection on the cross, the kingdom of God has started to break into this world in a real way. 
And Peter, in his mind, thought that meant Romans getting pushed out, Israel getting restored, cultural power being brought back to the Jews. That's what he thought. And Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. I meant something very, very different. Through the upside down nature of the kingdom, listen to this, it comes in powerful ways in our world, but it's never through power. It's always through suffering and death because it's only through suffering and death that resurrection comes. And what Jesus is inviting you and I into is to experience the power of the kingdom of God breaking in in this world, not through us yelling and throwing a fit and being outraged culture, but through following Jesus in the way of suffering and death, the way of the cross, because on the other side is resurrection, powerful life. Now, here's what this meant, and I'll close with this. You can get on a plane today, and you can fly to what is now modern-day Turkey to visit the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You can take a, a trip over to Rome and look at the Temple of Caesar, where many Christians were executed for not bowing the knee to Caesar as Lord. You can travel to the Golan Heights or uh, Caesarea Philippi, what we looked at last week with its rows and rows of temples to the gods and to Rome and all these other things. And do you know what you're going to find if you got on a plane today to go visit all these sites? A pile of rubble. What felt so unshakable in the first century, Rome, so sure, so powerful, so untouchable, is now a pile of rubble. It didn't last. But do you know what you can also do today? You get on a plane. You could fly to Mumbai, India, or Sri Lanka, or Beijing, or Afghanistan, or Ghana, or South Korea, or New York, or drive around Moore, or Norman, or Oklahoma City. And do you know what you're going to find? The church of Jesus Christ is alive and well. What felt so fragile and weak and on the brink of destruction, and termination altogether is alive and well because Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail. What I'm asking you to do as a follower of Jesus is to play the long game. Don't trade your discipleship to Jesus just to be on the quote-unquote right side of history. What everyone feels like is unshakable, our culture around us today. Friends, Jesus is the hope of the world. And it actually is worth losing your life and having cultural shame following Jesus to play the long game for what's coming.